Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. I'm glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Gavin Soul today. Now, this interview was recorded quite a while ago, but I hadn't released it yet. But I think you'll agree that Gavin has a fascinating perspective. Now, I'm not going to delay and we're going to get straight into the interview. But if you enjoy it, you might want to check out some of the more than 150 in the back catalog. All right. So it's a pleasure to welcome Gavin Soul here today. Thank you for joining the podcast. It's nice to be here. Steve. And on this podcast, we talk a lot about purpose and why people do what they do. And thinking about um, a person's life, it's often helpful to go back to the beginning and look at some of the threads that often weave through, you know, from childhood or young adulthood, and then what the person is doing today. And I know on this episode, we're going to talk a lot about some things that you're doing in your life with your family, um, in terms of um, renewable, recyclable approaches. Um, But if we can go right back to the beginning, and you can sort of tell us a little bit about where you're from. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm in Taranaki. Mm -hmm. So I lived there for the first 16 years of my life and my dad's family's been in Taranaki since about 1860 so have quite deep ties to that land and I think when you have a a deeper tie to the land you feel more connected to it mm. so you understand how it works particularly with farmers you know they you know they understand what goes on and what makes grows and the health of the animals so they're really connected to the land mm. and then I also had a, um, growing up one of my uncles um, he's really into yachting and had a house on Cowboy Island and he wasn't sort of really been efficient in solar panels back then. That was in the early or the late seventies. Right. And there's sort of it's quite a different perspective in those days to be thinking about that. Um but also I grew up when we had Carlos days as well in New Zealand in the seventies. Mm-hmm. And so you you know, you're still a bit of shortage around things. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that, that life on a farm, like were you involved in the dairying from a young age? Like in my mind, I, I've never done it, but <laughs> the hours seem extremely difficult in terms of getting up really, really early, right? And yes, well, so probably a bit different then than it is now. Now it's a real sort of you know commercial operation, mm. very large herd size, you know, four to five hundred as a minimum. Whereas when I grew up, you know, you'd maybe one fifty to two hundred cows. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but it is a lifestyle. You know, it's you live and work the farm. Yeah. Um. You have slow periods through winter, but you know, then it's winter, so it's not the best time to get away. Mm-hmm. But then during summer, you're only milking, so you can get away between the day. So yeah, it's not. It you have to love farming to do it, mm. and it is hard work. Mm. Um, my my first job was milking cows when I was about eleven. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, you know, I got paid five dollars a milking. Right. Yeah, milking. Probably about a hundred cows. Yeah, with a, another guy down the road. Yeah, so it's. And it's am a, I right? It is the early starts. Like that's part of it, oh, or, or is it not too bad? Maybe no. it's my misconception. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, we were starting milking at six, so out of the shed by about seven thirty. Right. Um, yeah, but with larger herds, yeah, my sister still farms in Taranaki. Yeah, so they get up about four thirty in the morning. Mm. Yeah, and and calving is just. September's really, really hard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, get 30, 40 calves a day and 
you're just working flat out. Yeah, constant, huh? <laughs> and what sort of a child were you? Or you know, maybe thinking about your high school years, what sort of subjects did you enjoy, and what did you like to do? Um, probably, well, I like science, maths, um, biology, chemistry, physics. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not so much English. Probably struggled with English a little bit. Um, but yeah, but and then. Going through high school, didn't really know what I wanted to do, so right. um, left when I was 17, had a job as an apprentice mechanic, mm-hmm. worked, for, worked as a mechanic for four and a half years. And that sort of, it's quite good because it gave me a very good understanding of how things work mechanically and um, gives you sort of good common sense in terms of how to look at things and take things apart, yep. be quite methodical about it, which, you know, it's sort of a very good experience. Mm. Yeah, and then after that I went. So you didn't overseas. you didn't think that you'd be following your parents' footsteps into dairy and farming? Um, not that. really. Well, it's I don't know. It's, but what, but a lot of farming kids will sort of leave and like go to university or do something else, and then maybe come back. Mm. You know, after four or five years, yeah, or even longer. Sort of, but I think it's good to have that break if you've been living on a farm all your life, and then. Yeah step out of it for five years and then think, you know, should I come back into it or not? Maybe come back, yeah. Yeah, probably mm. about a third do, I'd say. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, they they really feel that tie to the land. Yeah. And it probably helps if your parents own, the, own a farm as well. Right, yeah. <laughs> especially now. <laughs> yeah, especially these days, yeah. yeah. So where, what path did your, your life take then? You went overseas, you said? Yeah, um, I went overseas for three and a half years, so... Mm. Um, worked in the UK for six months and then travelled and then worked back and mm-hmm. worked and then travelled. Yeah. So my, I had a job as a groundsman at a polo club. Okay. Yeah, at the mm. um, Guards Polo Club, which is in Windsor Great Park, mm. which is really nice. So. Yeah. How did you get that job? Oh, that was just advertised through a Kiwi News right. paper. Yeah, and then... Um, so got, it wasn't like you had a background in polo or something? <laughs> <laughs> you just showed up and yeah, that was it? if I had a background in polo, wouldn't be working as a ground. <laughs> yeah, but that was really interesting in terms of... It's a very... It's a rich man's sport. Yeah. A rich peasant sport. Yeah. Um, you know, to join back then was about £15,000. Wow. And then £7,500 a year uh-huh. just to be a member. If you play... You know, the top teams, you know, and a lot of the top guys are from Argentina. Mm. And each, they have four ponies per game, you know, for each oh, quarter. okay, right. And each, the top ponies are worth maybe thirty to $40,000. Wow. And so you have four of those, and then, so there's 16 per team. Yeah, and, and they fly them in from Canada or Argentina. And, yeah. Yeah. So what sort of people were joining as members of the club, and did you interact with them very much or no, not, not really. really yeah no um yeah very much a rich man's sports yeah. you know, the carry packers and, yeah yeah but it's quite it's inter- interesting to see that other side of life to see mm. you know these truly wealthy people mm-hmm. um and some of them are really nice some of them wouldn't talk to you yeah but then i got close to the queen a couple of times and oh, okay yeah so prince philip and prince charles and princess diana and, right so they were there to watch games Polo. or was, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. yeah. But then also being overseas, traveling through countries like from Kenya down to South Africa and then mm. around South America for five months, you sort of, 
see that disparity between what we have in the West and you know what other people don't have. Mm. And you sort of realise living in, in New Zealand, we just have it. It's just so easy. Mm. It's so nice. Mm. We have a country where we have a democracy and um, you have clean water most of the time. Yeah, um, your rivers and lakes are clean most of the time. Um, if you want to work, you can get a job. If you work hard, you can get ahead and get a nice house and have a good life. Yeah. Whereas some countries, there's just there's not an option. Yeah. It almost seems to me like there's sort of tiers that we're talking about because there's the South America example compared to New Zealand, and then there's New Zealand versus UK people who go to the polo club. Yes. <laughs> and that kind of must have been quite a contrast for you to be that close to it, you know, to yes. be seeing these people who were vastly wealthy, you know, mm. beyond wealth into the millions and millions of pounds, right? Yes. But also the when you go to other countries to see what happens in terms of resources, in terms of pollution and waste, mm -hmm. and, you know, you go to the, the Red Sea and there's just, you know, plastic floating everywhere. Mm. And as a world, we just, we don't really care about the world. Yeah. That's what I felt. And, and that's, you know, sort of going through Europe and realising there's just not enough being done. So I, when I came back, I did an engineering degree at Massey University. Mm. Never so, was engineering. It, so was it those um, those experiences traveling that mm. focused you and that's what you decided to yes. to do? Yep. Mm. Yeah, but, well, I've always liked um, things to work well and be efficient mm -hmm. and always and liked water. So doing a degree in environmental engineering around water and wastewater and solid waste mm. um, seemed to be the best fit for what yeah. I wanted to do. Yeah. So you came back, and where did you study? Was that Massey, you said? Yeah, in Palmerston North. Yeah. So that was from 1995 to 1998. Right. Yeah. And at that point, did you know what you wanted to do in terms of a career? Like, is it a... I don't know enough about this area. <laughs> is it? Is it there's only a certain type of job, or there's a multiple options once you get that degree? Or um, um, how, did, how did that play out? Well, it's... There's sort of multiple options out of about 32 people that graduated with my degree. Mm -hmm. There's probably only one other that's still working in the wastewater field. Okay. The rest, um, you know, like going to, say, an industry, but, but we'll go into like, um, industrial, so maybe like beer or food or yeah. into management or environmental compliance. Yeah. Um, they just go in terms of what sort of fits what they want to do. Right. I did find at university a lot of people were there just because it was something to do. Right. And they were had enough brains to do, do something. Mm. But it was just sort of a stepping stone to... Yeah, and that was a bit of a contrast to you who'd been overseas a bit and yes. and had a purpose behind what you were doing. Yes. Yeah. And so you were you were that specific. You were studying wastewater. That's what you, that's the, what you graduated in? Or? Um, well, the, the degree is a process-based degree, so we mm. looked at... Because it's messy, a lot around milk, milk okay. powder, lactose. Mm -hmm. um, so like drying and evaporation, refrigeration. Um, then um, looking at meat in terms of like freezing and what yeah. happens when you put it on a chiller and stuff like that. Yeah. But then we did wastewater treatment. And my fourth year project was for a water treatment plant from in Taranaki. Okay. And then we also did solid waste as well. Yeah. So looking at mass incineration. Hmm. It's a good yeah, degree. Quite a variety of topics, really. Yeah. Well, it sort of has to be. Um, 
when you're an engineer in New Zealand, you have to be a good generalist. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few people who are real specialised, you know, well, you know what it's like in terms of law. You can mm. have a good knowledge of a, quite a lot or you can go specialise. But then it's only maybe two or three people in the country are that focused. Mm. And same in wastewater treatment. There's maybe about four or five principal engineers right. in wastewater treatment. And then there's you know quite a few associates and then a few seniors, but there's sort of not many in that sort of senior to junior graduate level, intermediate. Yeah. yeah. So there, you have to know a little bit about a lot of different topics, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, sort of you have to know because when you're doing a wastewater treatment or you know you start, you're doing a preliminary design, so you need to know about consenting and environmental impacts, environmental assessments. Yeah. Um, cultural impacts, you know, um, the history of the plant. Mm. You need to know a lot of data in terms of, do we know how the plant's performing? How much is there? Normally there isn't enough data. Yeah. And at this time when you were a student, were you starting to get into sort of recycling or reusing and that type of thing on a personal level as well? Yeah, always, you know, been very good at and it's changed over the years. Like when you first started, you always had to take stuff to the transfer station. You know, mm. they never curbside collections for re- recyclables. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, but we'd always separate stuff at the flat and take it down to the recovery park. Um, yeah. But also, it, it can be quite hard sometimes when there's not the service available and you, you mm. don't know where to take it. Yeah. And so then it has to go to landfill. Mm. And that's one of the challenges with solid waste is you know, you can only recycle so much and it depends on where your markets are and what recycling equipment you've got. Mm. Here's a machine or hand and then what can you sell? And if you can't sell anything, there's no point in collecting it. Right. So, you know, it's still going to end up in the landfill, so you might as well just put it straight to landfill. Right, yeah. And so what happened in terms of your first jobs and where where that yeah. took you around New Zealand? Um, my first job was with Tauranga. City Council as a graduate engineer wastewater, so I did a bit around modelling the wastewater flows. Mm-hmm. Then I worked for Downer as a supervisor for water and wastewater treatment. Worked for Watercare for a little while, MWH, GHD. So this um, is all in the same area? Or oh, were you moving around? Tauranga, Auckland, Monganui, Wellington, mm-hmm. and Christchurch. Wow. I, I moved to Christchurch in 2006. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 12 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, with GHD. Um, and then I worked for Oasis Clearwater, which is a, um, they do package wastewater treatment plants. Mm-hmm. And then I worked for Selwyn District Council as a solid waste manager. Okay. For about three and a half years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or just the future in terms of um, wastewater treatment and stormwater treatment and wastewater reuse. Right. Um, so what does that involve? What, is, what does the future hold for wastewater treatment? <laughs> Um, well, so some of the key challenges are where the wastewater gets disposed of to, mm. you know, um, if, if you, it's not very environmentally friendly, but if you're discharging to the sea, it's a lot easier because salt water is a very good disinfectant. Right. But then if you're discharging to land or to a river, it's, it's a lot more difficult in terms of meeting consent conditions. Mm-hmm. So you need to look at what treatment processes you can need to put in place to meet those consent conditions. Mm. So the harder things to treat are things that um, 
the chemicals that we put down um, the wastewater pipes, so your cleaners and mm -hmm. um, all the medication that we take, so all your antibiotics, oestrogen, estrogen, right, um, all your radiation, your chemotherapy patients. Yes. Um, that stuff's very hard to treat and um, normally doesn't get taken out of the wastewater treatment process. Right. Yeah. There are new technologies coming that may be able to do that, mm. but they're sort of at a pilot stage at the moment. Mm. So what happens to it? it? It just ends up in the environment, yes. in the system, yes. out there somewhere? Yes. Well, it's the same thing, you know, like um, the microbeads, plastics. Right. You know, when you wash, you use those to wash yourself, they end up going down to the wastewater treatment plant and either will go out to sea or to river or get applied to land mm. because they won't get taken out by the wastewater treatment process. Mm. Depends what it is. Um, but like a, an advanced wastewater treatment facility in terms of treating the wastewater for reuse will go through the normal treatment process and then filtration and then ultrafiltration and then reverse osmosis. So we use okay. pressure to push water through a membrane mm. so that all that comes out is water, nothing else. Right. Then you add stuff back into it so right. it tastes like water. And then you disinfect it. Okay. And then you reuse it. Yeah. And would that be what's done in some of the bigger cities around the world, like yes. Tokyo or other places? Um, Singapore. Yeah. In Singapore, they use, I think it's about 30% is they use for recycled water. Mm -hmm. And the water that they produce, it's used in a lot of industrial applications mm -hmm. because it's so clean. Right. But what about those chemicals that you were talking about before? What's happened to them? Have they been purged through the, the filters or... <laughs> Yeah, well, if it, if it goes through reverse osmosis, it will take those out. I see. Because it, it takes out very small particles, so you're talking like molecule size. Right. So anything bigger than, you know, a water molecule will probably get held back. Mm. 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 Wow. That's a really interesting area because it's, uh, well, it's to be honest, it's not something I've thought a lot about, but clearly there's a lot of science and technology going on behind the scenes. I used to live in Tokyo, and so um, kind of was aware that I think they reuse some of their water and mm. um, but hadn't thought through sort of the process going on somewhere. Yeah, I think a lot of it's to do with perception as well mm. because you can, if you say it's reused wastewater, it's been through these treatment processes, it's all very safe to drink. In a room full of people, probably 50% of people still wouldn't drink it. Right. But even though it's, when you look at London, you know, the water that's come through there, mm -hmm. come to London, mm -hmm. Has been taken out, used, and then put back in. Taken out, used, put back in. Right through treatment processes, and then gets reused and drank. And if you put it into a dirty river and reuse it, it seems to be okay. But I see <laughs> <laughs> it has to go through some natural environment for people to trust it again. Maybe yes. even though that doesn't really matter. No, it makes it worse. It's a perception. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, so one of the key things at the moment is solid waste in terms of. Um, how much we send to landfill and, you know, plastic bags and mm. um, food is, you know, food makes up probably about 30% of the waste we send to landfill. Mm. And it's, there's a program at the moment called Love Food, Hate Waste, which has been delivered by Wastemans. It's been done really well, um, but it's about keeping that message going and keeping people interested and engaged. And because mm -hmm. and maybe out of, you know, say so 30% of that food is still edible food that gets right. thrown out. So, you know, and it's about $850 million a year that we throw out. Mm. So, Just things going past expiry dates or just general waste? Of, oh, just general waste. Yeah. 
you know, especially things like bread. Yeah. Um, just don't get stored properly and, or just don't get eaten or just go, oh, nobody wants it, I'll just chuck it. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm. and you see it all the time. Things just not eaten. Mm. Mm. And I guess as well, um, thinking about supermarkets or, you know, the food sources themselves, yes. if things start to go a little bit brown, they probably figure we're not going to sell this. Yes. Chuck it. Well, I think most of them are pretty good in mm. terms of trying to match, you know, what's going out versus what's coming in because yeah. you know, it's in their best interest yeah. to sort of maximize that. Mm. And how to, it's like, well, we know that's not only going to last another day. Let's drop, we'll put on special just so we know it gets out because mm. we don't end up throwing it out. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I've dealt a little bit with Roy from New World and mm. no, he's really good. Yeah. He's very proactive in the community. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's good to hear. So I'd really love to talk a little bit about what you're doing um, at your own home, um, because I think it's quite a challenge for people to think about the way that they live and, and the way that they consume. So I just wonder if you could talk us through sort of some of the initiatives that you've put into place and what shape that has taken for you. And maybe to, to start us off, sort of how you got started on that journey or how it's grown to what it is today. It probably started when I met my wife, <laughs> you know, because there's always the woman in your life always makes a very great contribution to your life. Mm -hmm. um, it started probably about 15 years ago. So I was, I'm only eating fish, not red meat, and she was a vegetarian. So didn't really take much to change. Right. And a lot of that is to do with, even though I you know, brought up on a farm, mm. um, personally, I don't like killing animals. and. Mm -hmm. But also from a energy perspective in terms of the land and water and um, other things required to get a kilogram of beef to your table yep. versus a kilogram of lentils, um, you know, there's a vast difference. Mm, mm. And if we change that, you know, we wouldn't would yep. have plenty of food in the world. Mm. But my wife and I think very similar in terms of trying to make use of what you have in terms of what's the best way to use what we've got. Mm -hmm. How can we make it work better in terms of electricity, in terms of switching to LED lights or just putting the dishwasher on after nine or mm. looking at what's the best um, rate for your electricity and shopping around your various electricity stores. Mm -hmm. um, and then just because I like sorting stuff out we I always make sure that we recycle well, and I'd clean out all the containers, you know, peanut butter jars and everything. Yeah. Separate all the lids, soft plastics. I take to New World to recycle, um, and we put out about maybe one sixty liter rubbish bag a month for a family of five. Mm -hmm. But it's also even with the recycling, I only put put it out maybe once a month. Not I don't need to put out every second week because it's not full. Mm. So it's also thinking about what you buy. So we um, buy in bulk. My wife and a friend of hers, Adrian, set up a collective in Rolleston to buy organic food. Okay. And also we bulk order through Ceres and Chantel. Mm -hmm. So when we buy oats, it's normally, you know, like a 20 kg bag. Mm. So, you know, they'll last, you know, maybe three months. Then right. it's a paper bag, so it gets recycled. So we're not, we don't have that normal waste in terms of, using small things, mm -hmm. you know, which normally come in plastic. Yeah. And that soft plastic is not recyclable. 
Mm. So rather than buying a one kilo of oats, yes. you're getting 30 kilos of oats. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, but, it makes sense. But we've found that with a, um, the collective, um, we have better buying power for organics. And because we're not going through the supermarket, the mm -hmm. cost is actually comparable to normal mm. produce. Right. Yeah, so it's not, we live better and it doesn't actually cost that much more. Mm. So when you come to buy a product or you have something in mind that you need, it sounds like part of your decision-making process is how is this actually packaged and yes. what what's the the waste result from what I'm actually buying? Yes, um, but it's also looking at the the cost and how it's made and what it's been made with. Mm -hmm. So we just bought a non new nonstick pan, but we went away from Teflon because we're not. Although it's not conclusive if it's good or bad, um, you say well. I'd rather buy something and then know it's okay and not have that 50-50 chance. Mm -hmm. But then so we research into it to make sure it's a good product and has a good guarantee. And then we shop around to make sure we get the best price. Mm -hmm. So it's about, you know, making, using your money well to get, buy good things, mm. not just buy stuff. Although my son does have an obsession with cars, <laughs> the cars movies, cars one, two, and three. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then energy-wise, we have we put some solar panels on our roof last year. Okay. It's a two point eight kilowatt system, mm -hmm. and we'd been watching for about five years, and we we thought about going off grid when we built our new house six years ago, mm -hmm. but the cost was just wasn't worth it mm. over the long term. But the cost for a smaller system dropped, so mm. it's um, makes it worthwhile in terms of. Having it, the cost paybacks to about ten to eleven years, but our, our power bill for last month was about I think about forty dollars mm. for a family of five. Right, and so we do things like we've turned the hot water cylinder off. So if we're producing excess power, it'll look at the hot water cylinder, and if it's still at temperature, it brings it up to temperature. Then once it hits temperature, it'll start exporting. But then if we run out of hot water, we run out of hot water. Right. And you know, and we still survive. Yeah. And then in the winter, we've got a, a wet back on our fire. Mm -hmm. So between the solar and the fire, we have enough hot water. Mm. Yeah. So in winter, our power bill is about sixty dollars a month. Mm. Mm. It's a lot lower than my power bill. <laughs> yeah, and I sort of think heat pumps are good, but if you have to leave them on all day to get the most efficiency out of them, sure. And then you know the. The, probably the ground source heat pumps are a lot more efficient. Um, I, I don't know if it's actually worked out for a lot of people that they're cheaper. Mm. And the fires probably would have, would have been better. Mm. But then I've got, you know, 600 pine trees, so I've free wood. So. Right. Yeah, yeah, you've got a source. <laughs> yes. So you're very conscious with solar energy and you're very conscious with the products that you buy about the packaging. You're very conscious about the recycling and, you know, yes. um, minimizing the waste. Um, are there other things that you're doing in your home to, on this? Yeah, well, we, for food waste, we have six chickens. Mm -hmm. um, so they get some of the waste. And then I also have some worm farms mm -hmm. and some Pikachu bins. So I use those and then use the liquid out of those as fertilizer for our fruit trees and natives. Mm -hmm. um, food waste is hard because it's... 
I don't know if it's just a, a human thing where you always end up with something in the back of the fridge that just doesn't get eaten. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it always seems to be that there's something that's there for, once it's there for like three or four days, it just ends up there and then two weeks later it gets thrown out. Right. Um, but I try and make sure that we, um, our fridge is kept quite empty, so it's just got food in it that's been eaten. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have a lot of stuff in our fridge. and have a small freezer, mm. you know, just a fridge freezer. Um, yeah, so it's, but yeah, I'm, I'm not fussy with food. I'll, if stuff is left over, I'll, I'll eat it. Yeah. Yeah, whereas my wife, if it's there for a day, she's like, no. She won't eat it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you've got worm farms, you said. What was the other thing? Bakashi. So how does that work? What is that? Um, Bakashi's, I think it's actually Japanese. It's sort of like a bucket within a bucket. Okay. And it uses a fermentation process. Mm-hmm. So the bucket's about 15 litres, I think. And so you put in about a litre of food, squash it down, put this powder over it, and in the powder, it's like a sawdust. It's just got fermentating bacteria. Mm. And so they sort of pickle the food. And then you fill the bucket up and then leave it for about two weeks, and then you can put that into your garden. Okay. And it breaks down very quickly. I see. And so provides nutrients and beneficial bacteria for the soil mm. and the liquid you can get off you need to dilute it down i think it's about one to 20 to oh, use okay. as fertilizer so right. a little bit goes a long way yeah so pretty strong really yeah but it's a very compact way and a non-messy way to deal with food waste mm. it's a, from a guy in tamaru okay who sells it yeah yeah oh, that's interesting and the other thing that we talked about before we started was I think you're going to try to build a special type of garden, right? Oh. Like a underground or yes. do you want to just, I've never seen one, so you're going to have to describe it to me. <laughs> sure. Um, it's called a, a bolopini and it's used a lot in countries which have quite um, cooler temperatures. Right. So what it is, it's, it's like an underground greenhouse. So we've dug a hole. It's about five metres long, three metres wide by about one metre deep. Mm-hmm. And so in the hole we're going to put, so it's um, lengthways is north facing. On the south side we're going to put 200 litre drums and fill them with water. Mm-hmm. And they'll be used as a heat sink but also for irrigation mm-hmm. of the garden. Yep. And then we're going to build some raised beds inside the wallopini on the floor. And then I'm going to cover the wallopini with a roof. Mm-hmm. So just be a roof and just plastic. Yeah, um, plastic and then batten and then plastic hmm. to insulate it. So what it means is you still get that nice solar gain, but you don't have the heat loss that you have with a freestanding glasshouse. Right. So the Earth acts as an insulator. Mm-hmm. And normally when, I think if you go down maybe one or two metres, the Earth's at a um, constant temperature of about seven degrees. Okay. So it never gets any cooler. Because mm-hmm. we really want to grow stuff like capsicum and watermelon and Right. Other things all have lettuce that will grow through the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I guess, uh, is it used normally in places that, yeah, like which country would it have come from? Are we talking about Siberia or places like that or what <laughs> um, is it? In Bolivia on the oh, okay. uh, Alta, yeah. Alta Plana, mm-hmm. um, up near La Paz, um, mm-hmm. in Canada or in the States where it yeah, gets freezing in winter. Yeah. Um, so it's a way to get more constant temperature rather than being above ground, you're going underneath and therefore you're more yes. stable. Yep. yep. Um, but also in Canterbury, you know, that the wind is a, can be a killer mm. for 
quite a few vegetables. Yeah. You know, your tomatoes can wilt after four days of a good normal rest. Mm. And we're finding, you know, like a lot of stuff just can't handle that wind. Yeah. Well, especially in the place we both live in, Rolleston, and it is it does get quite windy, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, we've noticed that. Yeah. yeah. But we're also getting a, a, a 25-meter greenhouse as well. Mm-hmm. So that's just to look to grow things like um, corn and tomatoes and mm-hmm. just have a longer growing season. Mm-hmm. But we do the wallapini as well to grow, grow things like watermelons. Mm-hmm to try and extend that growing season. Yeah. So it sounds like you're experimenting with quite a few different things and trying them out and see what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Well, I live on seven hectares, so I've got that space yeah. to do it. So. Yeah. Yeah, it would be less practical for some people <laughs> with a, a small backyard, I guess, to put in a wallapini. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 And um, in terms of the um, organic food and the collective, can you just describe a little bit about how that works and what led your wife to begin doing that? Um, well, it's just there were a couple of people within Rolleston who um, were quite keen to buy organic food mm-hmm. and wanted to know how it could be set up and um, how it could be run. So it was led by a lady called Adrian. And my wife has sort of worked closely with Adrian to set up uh, the mm. order forms and establish those contacts with um, local produce people and Sarah's mm-hmm. and Chantal. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, I don't actually know too much about it. <laughs> I can't say yeah, too much. That's all right. I get into trouble. Um, but so my wife organizes, there's a template, Excel template, so you can place orders yep. and you can do shares of. So you can get a 20 kg bag of cashews and then share it with people. So I you see. buy it, but then they buy shares in the 20 uh, kg bag. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah. a more efficient way of getting bulk, really. Yes. Because uh, 20 kilos of cashews would go quite a long ways, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we get stuff, yeah, so like cashews and oats and rice and beans and anything. But like maple syrup and mm. coconut oil and... Um, then the series products, so, you know, the baked beans and all those things that come through there. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. No, that's great. And do you think that, uh, this sounds like a strange question, but bear with me. Do you think it makes a difference in terms of the health of your family and your kids and things to be eating organically as much as possible? Um, I think so. Um, you know, I know the results say it's inconclusive in terms of if there's good benefits or not, mm. but... Um, just when you know that, you know, like chemical residues are on food and mm. the only way to get a good broccoli without caterpillars in it is to spray the crab out of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that, you know, that the plant must uptake or retain some of those herbicides or pesticides mm. that are sprayed on it. So even mm. if you wash it, mm. it's still going to retain some of that. So how comfortable are you with ingesting that? Yeah, and I don't think it's, there may be no harm, but, you know, like collectively with all the stuff we eat, I don't think there's been a good study that would show, you know, everything that's sprayed on cabbages or potatoes or onions or, you know, lettuces or anything, mm. yeah, apples, all of those things collectively, you know, what do they, could they possibly do and in what concentrations and if you eat them over a 60-year life, what happens to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I guess it'll be something that we see over the coming years and decades and as as it moves more towards that, that there's um, more and more processed foods, yes. um, what the impact will be in terms of... Because um, I've talked with people who've said before, you know, the gut health, the gut itself, what are you feeding it? Mm. <laughs> and, um, and I think it's a good question. And it's certainly... Maybe it's just me, but it feels like I'm meeting lots more people who are gluten-free or celiac or there's these, um, you know, reactions to hmm. some of the products that are going into the food that, and also dairy and, and other things like that. So, yeah, I don't know. Do you think it's just that we're more aware of it now and it's always been that way or it's actually on the increase? No, I think it's on the increase. I, growing up or going to school, I don't think I met anybody who had a peanut allergy yeah yeah you never knew what EpiPen was mm. but now every place seems to have one mm-hmm. <laughs> it's normal every school yeah um yeah and it's like my first child henry he had quite a few allergies when he was born so mm. you know took protein so all you know like fish soy dairy meat cat hair dog hair mm. so he was on a synthetic formula because he was covered in eczema when he was six months old. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think it is more prevalent, and I don't think it's just because we know more. I think, and you need to ask yourself, why is that happening? Mm. Is it because of the processed food that we eat? Mm. You know, long-term, is it doing us harm, changing our defences, and we can't, we don't recognise the food that we're eating. It's not whole food we're eating anymore. Mm. Even with milk, you know, they, they take the milk and take it to pieces and then put it back together. Mm. Um, some milk is better than others in terms of how it's treated. Mm-hmm. But always I laugh when people drink non-fat milk and it's like, it's not the milk that's making you fat. It's all that other crap you eat. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the the white flour and the sugar. Yeah. You know, the, White flour is just as bad as sugar in terms of how it affects insulin levels. Yeah, yeah. So we do things like I bake our own bread, use spout flour. Mm-hmm. So I make about four loaves a week just mm-hmm. at home by mm-hmm. hand. Yeah. And it's easy. It's not hard. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot better for you. Yeah. So I think like that organics, you know, may be more expensive, but I think you need to think, well, is there a can I get it from somewhere else? Can we form a collective and buy in bulk? And then mm. you can get things at a more reasonable rate. Mm-hmm. So maybe not so much as expensive. And then if more people buy organics, then more people will farm organically. Mm. And that has to be better for the land as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And in all that you're doing, um, it, I think you're connected with other people like Bailey Perryman, who I interviewed for the podcast before. Yes. Um, is that something you've gotten involved in, sort of the Food Resilience Network and those sorts of groups? Um, so Bailey is probably my first person mm. to meet with it. I don't know Sean, Byrne, Sean Barnes, who works for Okina. Mm-hmm. He's very um, proactive and energetic about social enterprise. Yep. He's a great guy. Yep. Um, but it's good working with Bailey in terms of someone who's really, he's just trying to do the right thing mm-hmm. and trying to make it work. Yeah. And yeah. sort of working, going into new territory, not really knowing what he's doing, but you know, just giving it a really good go. Yeah. So in what context are you dealing with him? Um, just providing some input in terms of um, solid waste, in terms of mm-hmm. how it gets collected and 
you know, yeah. what can what can you do with it, and mm-hmm. um, what to be aware of in terms of, you know, when you're looking about consenting for an activity. Yeah. Um. So making sure you comply with council consent conditions or um, district plan rules around, you know, sort of commercial, industrial, residential mm-hmm. areas. Yeah. Um. And just then looking at how can you grow and working through a business plan and mm. just trying to be aware of other things. Yeah. So that kind of connects with the interview I had with him where he was talking about the broccoli bonds, which yes. I think the funding for that was going towards those sorts of projects, right? Which yes. is about the waste and compost and that type of thing. Yeah, and it's, yeah, because he's sort of got, he's got a very good niche market with that collection of organic waste in the CBD. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because you know, no one's providing that at the moment and it's sort of a bit of a gap in that mm-hmm. contract that mm-hmm. um, no one's filled. Yeah. And it works really well in terms of he collects it, he grows stuff, and then you bring stuff back. Mm-hmm. And you know, uses a, a sort of electric-powered bicycle to collect it. Yeah, it's a nice circle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> comes from here and goes here and comes back. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. social enterprise is interesting in terms of, you know, like how can we make things work, not just for profit, but mm. do things that are good for the community and, and people mm-hmm. and the environment and you know, is there another method that we can do things? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an area that fascinates me, and I've done lots of reading and writing about it, actually, and work with Sean yes. quite a bit with Akina and that team, and I think it has a way, you know, it signals a way for the future, really, that that more mainstream businesses will start understanding that hmm. they need to build in some of the principles that are inherent in the social enterprise world, so, yes, yeah. Yeah, it's got, you know, interesting, I work for Jacobs, which is a global company of 75,000 people. Right. Yeah, it's a large company. It is. <laughs> um, but it's a very good company, and um, we have a very good chief executive. Who's, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's really good. Yeah. It's good to so have that's him. here in New Zealand? No. In, in global? Houston, Texas. All right. Okay. Yeah, mm. yeah Steve Demetrio. Yeah. He's a very good yeah. house guy. Yeah. Mm, that's great so is there anything else that we didn't cover in terms of what you're doing at your home because the thing that I find challenging about your story and what you've been telling us is how proactive you've been in many different areas because I think many of us would look at the lights and say oh yeah we'll do LED but maybe we wouldn't then go and install solar panels you know (laughs) and (laughs) we wouldn't maybe shop around as much as we should when it comes to the products that we buy you know like the oats thinking let's get 30 kilos of oats rather than a one kilo bag because we're going to have to use yeah, well, oats. A lot of it depends on your circumstance in terms yeah. of, you know, like we designed our house to have a, a big laundry so with a lot of storage right. so we can store a lot of food. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can just pick one thing, you know, like the lights. Mm. It's like when they fail, we'll put LEDs in. Mm-hmm. So you do it over two or three years and you don't, it doesn't cost you a lot of money. Mm. And if they're on special, buy seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And so then you know that's done. Um, yeah, it's but like I'm the same. I'd, I see a lot of things, you know, like the organics and the recycling and the rubbish bin at work. Mm. It's, it's never done correctly. Mm. It drives me mad. <laughs> but it's like thinking, what can I do? Mm. How can I make a difference? Yes. And not to worry about that, you know, the greatest fear, you know, concentrate on what. I can contribute to. Mm. So, 
you know, I make sure that I recycle well and don't put out too much rubbish because I've been to landfills and I see what they're like and, mm. and you know, it could change quite easily and actually save the country a lot of money mm. if we really did it. But, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's just about thinking, what can I do? And it doesn't have to be a lot. Mm. Yeah, it's just like, can you cycle to work one day a week rather than take the car? Mm. Yeah. So I guess you'd encourage people to have a proactive approach, really, and, and think about these in terms of recycling, use of energy, consumption, yes. type of food that's going into your body, you know. Yeah, well, like doing your own garden at home's mm. quite easy. Mm. Um, and you can just do one raised vegetable garden that's maybe, you know, like three meters by one meter mm. and just do things like just grow strawberries. Yeah. Yeah, very easy. And they look after themselves and, you know, they die after three or four years and you have to replant some new ones mm. and just put a net over it, get the birds off. Yeah. But they're very low maintenance. Yeah. And strawberries are really nice. Fresh. Yeah, they are. That's actually what I'll show you after we finish <laughs> recording because we have some strawberries back here. And it's great because the kids love to go out and like, look, mom, I found some strawberries. It's really yes. fun for them too. So, yeah. yeah. And it's I sort of don't understand when people build new houses or when we line streets why we don't like plant apple trees or mm. you know some easy care fruit yeah and put just, in some edible things yes. rather than yeah. other trees yeah yeah and just like a you know dwarf apple tree so it only grows to like six foot maximum and you can reach for the apples mm. yeah yeah but i guess you'll get neighbors fighting each other for them and yeah <laughs> <laughs> i guess it'd be there'd be worse problems when there are people out on the streets picking fruit <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's but good. And just thinking in this podcast, we end up talking about purpose and and what that means for different people. So I'm just curious about what that word means for you and and some of the things that you've talked about and been involved in. Yes, yeah. I think for me, um, purpose is to conserve and not consume, mm -hmm. um, because I still feel tied to the land and understand that. You know, that we're all on this planet together and whatever we do has an impact on each other and on the planet and the environment and everything else that lives on this planet with us. Mm. And we're not disconnected. And I, I don't think everyone feels that way. Mm. Probably maybe one or two percent of the population <laughs> feels that way. But when you look at the impacts that we can have in global warming and you think, well, and three or four generations, you know, the world may be a very different place and very hard, mm. and very difficult to live because mm. of what we're doing now, mm. because we're just consuming as fast as we can. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So I just try to look at what I can do to not place a burden on the environment mm. and send that to drive a motorcycle. And I like riding that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, yeah. You still need to enjoy your life, but but how can you live better? Yeah, and how can you do what whatever it is that you can do? That's kind of the message, isn't it? Yeah, mm. and just feel happy doing what you can do. Don't mm. try and do everything because mm. it's yeah you know, becomes if it's too difficult, it's hard to take that first step. Mm. But if it's you're just small, mm. it's easy to take that first step. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, I've really enjoyed talking with you, Gavin. Mm. Just hearing about your choices in your life and sort of some of the things that you've implemented 
and you know with three young kids and kind of living this life of trying to um you know reuse and recycle where you can um and i think it's quite i always like to look back at a person's life and think about the streams or you know how you got to where you are and even just thinking about polo you know <laughs> that you you saw a real different way of living and different way of life and going to south america and it seems that that really gave you a focus when you came back to study engineering and wastewater and and then that's become more than a profession in a way it's kind of flowed into your you know your home life as well and the things that you're doing so i think people listening will be challenged by that because all of us have different things that we could probably be doing better yeah yeah so um yeah thank you very much for coming and um, appreciate your time and chatting with you well, thank you steve it's been enjoyable good cheers I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Gavin. I know for me there were several things that stood out, in particular the purposefulness with which he's approached his life and how he's organized things. If you enjoyed this, then you might want to check out some of the earlier episodes in the back catalog. Until next time.